This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 24th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, we talk about what we know now about the effects of coronavirus on the body, system by system, with news writer Meredith Wadman. Then, staff writer Paul Lucen joins us to discuss a quantum diamond microscope that's cracking the magnetic secrets in very old rocks. What does it mean to be sick with coronavirus? We typically think first probably of shortness of breath, you know, the symptom that will determine whether you should go to the doctor. You could have a fever, you could lose your sense of smell, maybe some stomach problems. But what does this virus actually do to the body? Meredith Wadman and a team of reporters from Science looked at what we know of its effect, system by system. It's not a complete picture yet, but researchers are starting to pull it together. Okay, Meredith, how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Sarah? I'm good. This is a very comprehensive story from nose to toes, I think, as I saw in one description of the work. Yes, indeed. So what happens when a person comes in contact with a novel coronavirus? Essentially, they inhale it in respiratory droplets. They might also pick it up on fingers that they then place to their face from an inanimate surface. The virus finds a welcoming home in the upper respiratory tract the back of the throat, the nose, because there there are cells that are rich in what are known as ACE2 receptors. And these are receptors that live on the surface of some cells and that the virus needs in order to get into those cells. We don't know the numbers yet, but some people are just going to clear the infection and move on with their lives, right? They are. They're going to either be asymptomatic, not even being aware they are infected, and they can be very infectious in this stage, or they might feel crummy. They might have malaise. They might have aches and fever, but really within a week or so, start to recover. Or they might go into a more serious phase of the disease. This is when the virus makes its way into the lower respiratory tract? 
That's right. If your immune system can't beat back the virus while it's up in your nose and throat, then the risk goes up of it marching down your windpipe and into the what we call the respiratory tree, the whole system of airways that leads to the far reaches of the lung. And that's where the virus again finds a welcoming home because the tiny air sacs called alveoli, where oxygen exchange occurs with the blood, also have an abundance of these ACE2 receptors on their cell surfaces. And this is a problem because if the immune system goes on the attack, these tiny spaces in the lungs, you can get some really serious problems. Sure, it becomes what we know as pneumonia, and pneumonia simply is lung inflammation. This particular virus can cause a really rip-roaring lung inflammation. But these patients may have in quotes, mild pneumonia, although I don't think anyone has described how they feel as mildly affected. Or they may turn a severe sharp corner where they begin a a rapid downhill slide into what we know as acute respiratory distress syndrome, where there's just a raging pneumonia. And on their chest x-rays or CT scans, you're going to see white where you should have seen black, black representing air. Mm -hmm. And white is this whole inflammatory response, trying to beat back the virus, but doing damage in itself. Alveolar walls break down. Uh, There can be clots in the little tiny blood vessels that supply the alveoli. There's just a real stew, a real mess. And this Mm. is when people deteriorate very seriously and often die. One thing that uh, researchers are trying to understand is how serious is this immune response and would intervening at that point be helpful for patients? If you have just a regular immune response and you start giving immune suppressing drugs, you're disarming your your army in a minority of gravely ill patients the immune system goes into this really damaging hyperimmune state called a a cytokine storm when levels of certain chemical signals in the blood go absolutely off the charts. And in the end, what happens is the immune cells of the body begin attacking healthy tissues Mm -hmm. and you can get widespread clotting. You get the blood vessels leaking, blood pressure plummeting. It's a catastrophe for the whole body. So in efforts to combat that out-of-control immune response, they are deploying drugs that go after specific ones of these chemical signaling molecules known as cytokines. And just to be clear here, most of what we're going to be talking about is for severely affected patients, people who are in the ICU, people who are coming into the ER. So let's turn to the heart and blood vessels, Meredith. This is something surprisingly being seen in maybe 20% of patients. Yes, it's clear that the heart and blood vessels are a target for COVID and just how and why is still being sorted out. But one paper in JAMA Cardiology found heart damage in nearly 20% of more than 400 patients who were hospitalized for the disease in Wuhan. Another found 44% of patients in an ICU there had abnormal heart rhythms. And then there's also an increased tendency to blood clotting Mm -hmm. that in a Dutch ICU, nearly 40% of patients had blood that was clotting abnormally. These are extremely problematic issues in people that are already very sick from pneumonia. What has been seen happening to people's hearts? 
there seems to be heart inflammation and it's possible because the heart lining and the blood vessel lining, just like the cells in the lungs and the nose, is rich in these ACE2 receptors. Again, they're the virus's port of entry into, into cells. So the cells could be, it's possible that they're being in the heart and in the vessels directly inflamed. It's possible that the lack of oxygen getting through because of the problems in the lung is doing additional damage to heart or vessels. Mm-hmm. It could be that a cytokine storm releasing all these inflammatory molecules again, and, and cells remember they attack normal healthy tissue and that can include the linings of blood vessels. So there are these multiplex of potential causes that may indeed vary between patients as to what's causing what, but it's clear that there's cardiac and vessel damage in a significant number of these severely ill patients. Let's take a turn now to the brain. This is something that we've seen some scary reports on, actually, of inflammation in the brain. And we've also seen loss of sense of smell in coronavirus patients. Is that something that's related to the brain? It might be. That's not been established. But there is a direct connection from so-called olfactory neurons, the ones that let you smell, running from the nose up through, it's called the olfactory bulb, Mm -hmm. which connects to the brain. As one of our sources put it, it's a nice sounding theory. We have to go and prove that it actually extends to the brain. But there are more general brain effects that don't trace back to loss of sense of smell. For one thing, the blood's increased tendency to clot can put patients at risk of having strokes. There's also a problem in that a lot of these folks develop kidney failure. That in itself can cause delirium and problems for the brain. Mm. In addition, there can also be a quote-unquote sympathetic storm. It's sort of an overreaction of the nervous system that's somewhat analogous to the cytokine storm. And that's common after traumatic brain injury. Some people with COVID-19 can lose consciousness. So there's just a whole panoply of potential brain symptoms. Mm -hmm. Another symptom that I'd heard of before reading the story, and I haven't heard of most of this, was that people can have symptoms in their gut. They can have diarrhea. They can have an upset stomach. Now, does this mean that, you know, the virus or pieces of the virus are surviving digestion? Yeah, apparently it does. And one of the suggestions is that patients are swallowing their own respiratory secretions and that the virus is carried live and somehow survives the acid environment in the stomach to land in the small intestine, which is, again, replete with these ACE2 receptors. And so virus can establish a robust infection there. That's it's thought what's leading to diarrhea, nausea, and other problems in perhaps on average about 20% of patients across studies. I want to take a step back here and just talk about how all these different systems being affected kind of expand the pool of people who have pre-existing conditions that would make coronavirus infection really dangerous for them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So since we were just talking about kidney disease in the kidneys, that's one of the organ systems where if you have a pre-existing kidney disease that 
gives you basically a handicap when you start this race with this new virus. Then we think of something like diabetes harms the kidneys. So if you start with a lower baseline of kidney function, these chronic kidney patients with pre-existing kidney disease are at seriously greater risk of developing acute kidney injury during the infection. In the same way, Diseases that affect the blood vessels will also put patients at higher risk. High blood pressure, diabetes again, congestive heart failure, all of these kinds of pre-existing disease just make patients that much more vulnerable should they become infected. So how is research like this? It's so preliminary. We're really just beginning to understand the progression of this infection. How will this help with interventions or treatments? I think it will certainly offer clues and signposts. There will be new discoveries that hopefully will lead to highly effective drugs, but we have already a good deal of information that points the way to either existing drugs or targets for drugs now being developed. Knowing, for instance, the outline of a cytokine storm, which is something that can be triggered by other viral infections Mm -hmm. or bacterial infections, we have a starting place with that. We have these drugs already being deployed in other inflammatory states like rheumatoid arthritis, that you can then say, well, if they're beating back a certain cytokine, one of these out-of-control chemical messengers in arthritis, maybe they will also beat back some piece of the cytokine storm that's going on in these severely ill patients. And so you have such drugs being deployed in clinical trials. What we know about the ACE2 receptor and its detailed protein structure has been defined by a couple of new important papers, hopefully will give us new unique targets to actually prevent it binding there, which would be terrific. Yeah. So what was it like trying to report on this big mix of peer-reviewed, preprint, small clinical studies, firsthand reports, those kinds of things? It was very challenging. Every scientist and physician we interviewed really added the caveat of this is science on the fly. Our knowledge today may be completely eclipsed a month from now, Mm -hmm. or what we're thinking about how this disease is acting may be proven wrong within three weeks. This is obviously an ongoing endeavor to understand how the disease progresses, what conditions set you up for getting extra sick, and then, you know, the mechanisms that are happening at the cellular level. Where is the best information going to come from, do you think? Is this something where people need to set up these robust studies that you described? Are they doing that now? Yes, in fact, they are doing it, but hampered by the fact that they're trying to, at the same time, in many cases, take care of desperately ill patients. Kind of like, as the analogy goes, trying to build the plane while you're flying it. (laughs) this information is going to be constrained or imperfect because of the situation. It doesn't mean it's not going to be important. Thank you so much, Meredith. It's been a pleasure, Sarah. This story was reported by Meredith Wadman, Jennifer Cousin Frankel, Jocelyn Kaiser, and Catherine Matisik. They're all staff writers at Science. You can find a link to the story and all our coronavirus coverage at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with staff writer Paul Vusen on what a quantum diamond microscope is revealing about Earth's early tectonic shifts. Now, before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears 
that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. We have staff writer Paul Woosen. He wrote a story this week on a quantum diamond microscope that can look at fine traces of magnetism. Hi, Paul. Hello. When I say fine traces of magnetism, I mean, how fine, how small are these little pieces of magnetism? (laughs) These are magnetic signals trapped in ancient, ancient rocks, typically, that get down to grains of the rock that are thinner than the width of a human hair. How does it work? I I use the word diamond and the word quantum and the word (laughs) microscope, which I'm not exactly sure how they all relate to each other. It's actually kind of complicated, but we're here for it. (laughs) We boils down pretty easily. So diamonds in their carbon lattice, if you inject a nitrogen atom into it, it knocks out one of the carbons and then next to it creates this vacancy. So it's called a nitrogen vacancy center. And that little vacancy has a little cloud of electrons around it that act like free atoms that are very hypersensitive to Mm. magnetic fields, among other things. And so if you stick the diamond right next to that sample you're trying to get at and stimulate it with laser light, a sign of the magnetism of that sample pops right up. And the sign is glowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, changes in the color red. This was something that was observed when people were looking at diamonds as components of quantum computing. Yeah, I mean, people have known about these imperfections for decades, and physicists used it for a long time to experiment on quantum stuff. You know, it exists at room temperature, it's a solid piece of matter. And then some physicists at Harvard and elsewhere realized, hey, you know, this could actually be a super sensitive sensor for applications and not just our playing around. Yeah. We talked about this as something that can kind of do spatial resolution of magnetism in rocks. Mm -hmm. Is it more sensitive than other instruments? And if so, how sensitive is it? It is not the most sensitive. It's very sensitive, but there are these cryogenically cooled superconducting squid magnetometers are called are much more sensitive still. They're trying to get it up to that sensitivity, but they have a ways to go on that. So really... You know, it's something that can do a lot of samples, but it's this resolution where it can get finer details and show you the overall map where it lines up with the microscopic picture you have of what you're looking at. What first caught my attention about this topic was actually a science advances paper that's also coming out this week on very early plate tectonics. And actually the quantum diamond microscope fit into this finding. And then it turns out, you know, it's had a lot of other interesting results using this technique. So can you talk to us first about the early plate tectonics? So this is dating back 3.2 billion years ago. Okay, that seems really early. It's within the range of what many geologists expect. There's a huge error bar 
anytime from 3 billion years ago to four plus billion years ago, soon after Earth formed, there are credible guesses that could be made. There are different lines of evidence, but this type of paleomagnetism evidence, which is very good evidence, hadn't previously been found past 2.8 billion years ago. So how can paleomagnetism tell us about tectonic movement? The Earth's magnetic field, you know, as it runs through these rocks, as they're crystallizing, spins the electrons around and causes an orientation in the magnetic rocks. And that then is then fossilized into the rock as it turns from lava into basalt. People have spent decades figuring out how to extract these signals back out of these lavas, not just with this QDM, but also with these super sensitive other kinds of superconducting sensors. So you can see how the rocks were oriented when they solidified. Mm -hmm. And then if the plates move, you can say, oh, well, this one's not where we expect it to be. Right. So you have you know, this one data point, And then if you have another one for 3.5 billion years ago for nearby rocks, you can be like, hey, this is the minimum distance they must have traveled. How is this different from other techniques that have examined paleomagnetism that have been applied to this problem? There are some great techniques out there. You know, this new study you mentioned uses those as well to get the actual estimate of the paleomagnetism because that's still a more sensitive technique. What the QDM does is it allows you to believe your estimate because <laughs> the, the old estimates would give you kind of this bulk signal. And the QDM gives you kind of a map of this huh. tiny thing where you can say, oh, is this magnetic field coming from something that formed right when the rock formed? Or is it something that happened later on, some sort of magnetism that can be imported? You know, if little new magnetic grains come in, oh, huh. maybe it's all, you know, some distortion. And trying to figure out what's primary versus secondary fuels a lot of debate in the field. What would it mean if we could pin down a date for when plate tectonics started? Why is that important? I mean, it kind of just goes back to our basic understanding of, how the world works. We know it started, right? But what did the world look like before? If you go far back enough, it can come into the debates about the rise of life. Was plate tectonics involved in the rise mm. of life? Did it fuel the carbon cycle, the kind of hardcore, massive scale rock carbon cycle? It all depends on how far back you push it. But these kind of connections to the evolution of life on Earth, changes in the kind of chemistry of Earth, all can get skewed depending on when plate tectonics started. This has also been used on rocks from outer space. What were they trying to learn by looking at the magnetic map of this meteorite? Well, they know it likely formed around present-day Jupiter, further out than previously measured meteorite for magnetism. And with the kind of fine spatial scale, they could see this one little sulfide rim of this little melt inclusion that could have, you know, a magnetic signature from the very early solar system. Hmm. And they saw a very weak magnetic field from it, weaker than they might have expected to see compared to this previous data point they have of a meteorite that formed closer to the center of the solar system. What's generating the magnetic field in, the, in this scenario? It comes from the first collapse of the molecular cloud to form the, the dust disk. <laughs> <laughs> and then shear and rotation in the dust can then amplify it. What kind of questions are people asking about magnetic fields at that time? The driving question here is to what extent it exists, but did it play a role in the formation of the planets? So you can explain the formation of the planets without magnetism, but it's quite possible that 
magnetism also played a role in bringing together these dust particles to form into clumps and bigger clumps and bigger clumps that eventually became planetesimals and then planets. Hmm. And if you can, especially if you can find that the magnetic field was patchy and variable, not just this uniform thing, then maybe these patches where it's stronger helped cause planet formation. You mentioned to me, but it's not in the story, another application for this for extraterrestrial rocks or non-Earth rocks? Yeah. So Roger Fu, who's the geologist who's been pushing a lot of this forward, has a, a famous meteorite saying in his lab, perhaps one of the most infamous meteorites in uh, the world, a meteorite from Mars that back in the 90s was claimed as evidence of life on Mars. Life on Mars. He's not looking for life on Mars, <laughs> but it's also called you know, one of the most studied rocks, maybe the most studied rock on the planet. Yeah. He's searching for signs of the ancient Martian magnetic field from that and when it started, how it might have changed. Very cool. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Oh, my pleasure. Paul Busen is a staff writer for science. You can find a link to his story and a related paper in Science Advances on Plate Tectonics at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe to the show on Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.